0: thanks Sam well good morning my name is Scott Porter and I serve as one of the four elders here at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship and it's a pleasure to have you here so uh, just a couple of announcements real quick Uh, like Sam said actually before I even do that If if there's anyone here who needs a Bible, I forgot this first service. So, uh, if anyone here who doesn't have a Bible who needs a Bible, just throw your hand up and we'll get one to you. That's our gift uh, to you. And um, praise the Lord for the craft sale yesterday. uh, Generated fifteen thousand dollars. Thank you for all the women, primarily women, but not only women, who put a lot of time and effort into. into that every year, so thank you for that. And also, like Sam said, uh, today was supposed to be the first day of the new member seminar. Uh, Bo came down with, he's just not feeling good, didn't wanna be here today uh, because of the sickness, his little sickness, so we're gonna resume that next week. So next week in Dave's office, sorry for the last minute uh, change of plan on that. So with that, actually, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we look to uh, him in his word. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. And we thank you for saving us and, and bringing your son into our lives without which uh, we, would not be, we would not consider it something of importance to gather together on a Sunday morning. So we thank you for that. And Father, we praise you for uh, the good reports that we've received recently about Lucy Atkinson and Craig Hillman being cancer-free. And we recognize that they are not out of the woods in terms of uh, there's still treatments in front of them So we pray that you just uh, see them and their families through uh, to the end of their treatments. And we pray that that diagnosis that is uh, cancer-free today holds true in in one year, five years, and 25 years. Father, so now as we come to your word, we ask that you just give us hearts of praise for you. Let us, as we uh, look and study the works that you have done In and through us, that we focus on the God that is responsible for those works. And Father, if there's any here today uh, who have not placed their faith in Christ, Jesus Christ alone, for the forgiveness of their sins, Father, we just pray that you may uh, just open blind eyes and uh, give give enlightenment to anyone here today who might be um, questioning. Wondering or searching through the hearing of your word, may you save this morning. Be with me as I teach. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, as we uh, consider any like pastimes or hobbies that we may have, in my case, archery, we can find ourselves in situations. Where the joy that we once had uh, sometimes can be removed or diminished. We move from the innocence of simply uh, being thrilled to see the arc of an arrow flying through the air to one of having a, a critical heart or critical spirit. Like, you know, you ask yourself, why did I, why did I miss that shot by, by five inches? What happened? I think the same can happen with our Christian walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good thing to labor in the study of the scriptures and it's a noble pursuit to learn more about the things of God and it's a right desire to grow deeper into the life of a local church. But I fear, at least in my own life, um, that I can wander from my first love and I need to be brought back to simply praising God for who he is, like once again finding the enjoyment of just watching the arrow. And I believe that Psalm 111 can have that effect in the life of a believer, have that effect of bringing us back to a place of praising God. That's been my prayer for us as we look at this short psalm together today. I desire for it to have the result of a breathing life again into our Christian walks to the end of reminding us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ just how worthy of praise our great God is. So first off, we don't know who wrote the psalm and we don't know why it was written. So various psalms were written for various purposes. Some were written by David, for instance, as he sat crouched in a cave, as he was being chased by jealous madman Saul, Others were penned to accompany uh, various festivals and celebrations corresponding to the Jewish calendar. Some were written as hymns to be sung by God's chosen people, and some were written to be used as teaching tools in the synagogues. But what we have here in Psalm 111 is just a straight-up call to praise and worship God for who he is and how he has chosen to work on behalf of of his people, the Israelites. Psalm 111 is an acrostic poem or song, which means that it was written deliberately to correspond to each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So with the exception of verse 1a, which just reads simply praise the Lord, verses 1b to 10 are divided into 22 segments. Each of these segments begins with a different letter or a successive letter Um, of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. It's a common literary tool uh, used in other psalms as well. So this poem or song has the intention of drawing the reader or the singer into a heart posture of giving thanks for, studying, and remembering and having an appropriate response to the works of God that display his involvement in the redemptive history of the Israelites. The psalm begins and ends with what we call an inclusio, which just means bookends. So in verses 1 and verses 10, there's a call to praise the Lord. And by placing these bookends at each end of the psalm, it forms a literary connecting line between them, if you will, that just serves to show us that everything is in between the bookends is unified by a common theme. So let's read uh, Psalm 111. I'm reading from the ESV. So the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people, and he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So I propose that in our pursuit of desiring to, go, uh, to grow uh, deeper in our theological understanding of our creator, Ironically, we can sadly do so void of actually worshiping him. So let's just take the next few moments to fix our hearts on praising him. So I do have a main point that I would love for you to take away from our time together this morning, and that is this. The Lord displays his mighty works to be seen, to be studied, and to be remembered by his children, to the end of glorifying him and causing his children to fear him. Now, I, I'll bring clarity to that phrase, fearing God at the end, because it might not mean what you might think it means. So we'll be considering three points today, and when taken together, will serve to give us a pretty good working definition of what it means to praise God. So our three points this morning are this. Number one, praise is recognizing God's sovereignty and God's providence. So that would be verse one through three. Second point would be praise is remembering his wondrous works. That would be verse four through eight. Third point would, will be praise is meant to be our response in recognizing God's mighty works. And that will be verse nine and ten. So our first point today, praise is recognizing God's sovereignty and recognizing God's providence. So the psalmist is guiding uh, the Israelites to, to fix their hearts on recognizing God's involvement in their history as a people. So at the, at the foundation building block level of what it means to praise God, we must recognize that he is active in the world that he created. Now there is a a nuance of difference between describing God's sovereignty and describing God's providence and both come into play when considering what it means to praise God. So acknowledging God's sovereignty refers to him having the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. So consider Job's uh, response after God brought him through the trials, all the trials that we find in the, in the whole book of Job. And then at the end, in Job 42, 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God's sovereignty refers to him having the right and the power to do something and then doing it. And nobody or nothing will interfere with him accomplishing his purposes. Now God's providence, however, draws in the aspect of his divine wisdom. So he not only possesses the strength and the right to do with do whatever he wants but he exercises that right in a framework of what he deems best for his creation. Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So it's important to recognize God's sovereignty and his providence in light of the way that we view the world around us in that it eliminates any events happening by by chance. It removes things like uh, like luck, randomness. And by recognizing that any events that occur in this world, whether we perceive them uh, to be good or we perceive them to be bad, They happen within the structure of God acting according to his wisdom and in his perfect timing. And in doing so, the stage is set in our hearts to praise and worship God who controls everything. So when God's sovereignty and God's providence are recognized, we as created beings can rightly praise our Creator. In verse 1, the psalmist is calling the reader to not only recognize the Lord as being active in the world, but there is a call here to have whole hearts of thankful praise to the Lord our God. Verse 1 of Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. The author is calling us to not only have hearts of praise in solitude, but also to praise God corporately. Now the use of the Hebrew words here involves praising God in smaller groups, like a, like a home fellowship, for instance, as well as in the larger congregational gathering, like church on a Sunday morning. If giving thanks with our whole hearts from verse one is, is one intended response connected to recognizing the works of the Lord, then verse two introduces another response and that's studying the works of the Lord. Verse two reads, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Now this word study has connected to it um, in active seeking or active searching. Now it's a reality that we see played out in our lives, that that we put effort into something that we deem to be valuable. And it's worth mentioning here that in regard to studying the works of God, that there needs to be a connection maintained between our our heads and, and our hearts we see a pattern in scripture of God through the inspired writings of the biblical author reaching our hearts through the channel of informing our heads. For instance, Book of Romans. We have 11 chapters in Romans of doctrine focusing on God's plan of redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Paul establishes the depravity of or inherent sinfulness of man and shows that God established his perfect standard and that we've all violated that standard, making us worthy of being recipients of, of God's just wrath. Paul teaches us that God sent Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice to pay the sin debt of any who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and this perfect sacrifice was made both for Jews and for Gentiles Paul goes on to tell us that the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited or imputed um, to the account of anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ and that our faith in Christ changes our status with God from being objects of his wrath to now being adopted into his family. God now considers anyone who trusts in Christ to be an heir of God and we're taught that this change is entirely of God's doing. So we have 315 verses in Romans of Paul fueling our heads before we have any words of heart application. And then in Romans 12:1 we read Paul. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And again, Psalm 111, verse 2, shows us that studying the works of God, it's, it's a tool to guide us to having hearts of praise that praise God. So my point comes in the form of a warning to us all. which is studying the works of the Lord, should be seen as a means to an end. And that end is to praise and worship the God who is behind the works. So studying feeds our heads. And we need to view our intentional focusing of the Lord's evident work in our lives and in the lives of those around us as fuel that should ignite hearts of praise. And there's a sense that the nature of the, of the works themselves reflects the characteristics of the one doing the works. For instance, a craftsman who possesses skill and attention to detail produces quality work. So as we study the works of God, which leads us to praise him, we're actually praising God for who he is and not merely praising the works themselves. We see this in Exodus chapter 15 when Moses sings a song of praise. Now, God's work in this instance is that the Israelites were allowed to pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. And once safely through, and after God crashed the water, those walls of water, back down on the pursuing Egyptians. We see Moses singing a song of celebration in response to God revealing his character through his deliverance of his chosen people. Exodus 15.2 reads, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And again, down in verse 7 of, of Exodus 15, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. Or again in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In verse 3 of Psalm 111, the psalmist is drawing our attention to to three attributes of of God revealed by his evident works. His splendor, his majesty, and the longevity or or eternality of his righteousness. Psalm 111.3 reads, Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. So when we praise the Lord, we are actively acknowledging his attributes as they are displayed in the works on which we are fixing our hearts. And we need to recognize that those attributes are forever enduring. For instance, when we consider the salvation that was bought on our behalf at Calvary, we acknowledge God's eternal attributes. There's a security to our salvation that is that is bound to God's attribute of being eternal. So when the Lord Jesus Christ gave up his life in exchange for ours, he purchased our salvation, and the duration of which relies entirely on him keeping us as we've recently learned. Dave walked us through this in, in John 10, not too long ago, but Let's just read uh, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and not one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are only eternally secure because God our Father's character is eternal and secure. So praising God involves recognizing his sovereignty, recognizing his providence, and recognizing his eternal righteousness. Which brings us to uh, point number two, which is praise involves remembering his wondrous works. As it relates to our understanding of God's attributes and our praise of God for displaying those attributes through observing his works, the aspect of remembering, it's a tool utilized by our Lord to lead us to having hearts of praise. We are prone to wander And that involves wandering from having hearts that are actively focusing on the works that display his faithfulness to his children. Verse 4 of Psalm 111 reads this. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now God has deliberately woven acts of intentional remembering into how he desires for his people to live. So consider the Jewish calendar, for instance. It's uh, punctuated by designated festivals and feasts. And we need to consider those as annual celebrations of God injecting remembrance into the lives of his people. The annual Passover celebration for instance it's designed to not let the israelites forget that it was by god's hand that they were allowed to leave egypt it's an annual it was an annual celebration or commemoration of the tenth and final plague that he performed that finally led pharaoh to let god's people go and the same holds true for the annual feast of first fruits feast of weeks Feast of trumpets, day of atonement, feast of booths, and so on. These annual holidays are intended by God to to bring the Israelites back to a heart of praise and remembrance and cause them to focus on events in their redemptive history where God displayed his faithfulness. And one of my favorite examples of this comes to us in uh, Joshua chapter 4. Now, this transition period from uh, wilderness wanderings into actually entering the promised land was marked by the crossing of the Jordan River. In another miracle that displayed God's faithfulness to his past promise, God caused the waters of the Jordan to, to stand up in a, in a heap on one side which allowed the Israelites and the ark of the covenant to safely pass through down and then up the other side on dry land and God then commands that 12 stones commanded that 12 stones be taken up from the low riverbed back up to the banks on the Jericho side and God told Joshua to stack those stones as a memorial to their lord in Joshua 4, 21 we read, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their father and fathers in times to come, what do those stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. And the Lord your God as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now in the Porter House, we have a deliberate way that we as a family remember God's faithfulness which serves to bring our hearts back to a place place of praise and worship. So we record in a notebook specific examples where the Lord has provided for our family throughout the year. And we record those in in the same notebook every year. So it's got entries that go back 14 years. And we then make uh, Christmas ornaments. I actually should my wife makes the Christmas ornaments I mean in all transparency but we make them Uh, Christmas ornaments that correspond with entries in the notebook then uh, every year after Thanksgiving we, um, we, we open up that notebook and we go through each one of those we go through that discipline of reading each entry and then place the corresponding ornament on the tree the result is a Christmas tree that's decorated with uh, what might seem to be random things, but it serves as our Jordan stones. Psalm 111.5 reads, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. So whereas the Old Testament Israelites looked forward To the cross of Jesus Christ. We, as New Testament believers, are looking back at the cross. So we participate in the God ordained New Testament way of ensuring that we don't forget the redemption uh, that was achieved on our behalf at the cross of Calvary. So when we partake in the Lord's Supper here as a church every week, we are celebrating and we are remembering. That we are under what we call, I should say, what the Bible refers to as the new covenant. That is to say that the old covenant that was established at the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, it was never intended to be permanent. The system of, of repetition of animal sacrifices was a constant reminder to the Israelite people of their sin. And it was a graphic display of the payment that needed to be paid to cover their sins. The sacrifices, month after month, year after year, showed that God saw sin as being serious enough that blood needed to be shed. But the centuries of animal sacrifices only pointed ahead to the one perfect sacrificial lamb that would take away the sins of the world, namely Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was teaching the gathered crowds at the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5, he was showing that the old covenant, marked by its uh, repeated sacrificial system, was being fulfilled in Christ, which marked the closing of the temporary Old Covenant and the beginning of the eternal New Covenant. Matthew 5.17 reads, uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. So the simple act of recalling his faithfulness in the past has the result also of fixing our minds on his future faithfulness. Now in the case of the Israelites the ways that God exercised his sovereignty and his providence in the history of the Israelites was tied to his promise given to Abraham centuries earlier. And that promise was for descendants and land a land to call their own. And this promise was fulfilled by God orchestrating the circumstances to allow his promise to come to pass. Or rather, I should say, the fulfillment of his promise. And what's amazing is that God has revealed that he was the one who performed the works that led to him achieving his redemptive purposes for the people of Israel. And by him leaving no room for anyone else to take the credit for his mighty works, he receives the glory and he receives the praise. Verse 6 of our psalm this morning says, He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. God is a God of revelation. while in his wisdom, of course, uh, he's chosen to not reveal every aspect of himself to us, the Bible describes him, though, as being a a jealous God. Now, jealousy is not often thought uh, to be a desirable trait, but when taken in the context of remembering the works of God as a means of praising and worshiping him, it's necessary that he receive the credit for the works that he has done. It makes sense that in order for God to, to get the proper praise, that we would need to have it revealed to us that he was the one that was responsible. If not, we would have the tendency to credit them to, uh, to random chance or, or our own good choices. God desires the credit that is due to him. That's what the Bible means when it describes God as being jealous. Jealous for his own glory. And by doing so, he receives the greater glory, and he he achieves this glory by making sure that the Israelites know that he is behind the events that, when taken as a whole, serve to accomplish God's purpose. And not only did the Israelites attribute the, the acts that they witnessed to the one true God, but the watching world did as well. The nations surrounding Canaan recognized God's hand at work. Now, they may not have had the same connection to God's providence as the promise was made to Abraham, but nonetheless, they knew that the God of the Israelites was a God that was at work in the world. So we see this early on in the conquest of the land. Uh, consider Rahab in Jericho. She recognized God's mighty hand at work. Joshua 2 9 and 11 read this. And Rahab said to the men, those are the men that were sent to spy out the land. And Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond Jordan, the Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, For the Lord your God, he is is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So we see that even though those who were not part of the tribe of Israel were recognizing the works done by the hand of God. And in verse 7 and 8 of our psalm this morning, the psalmist draws our attention to another tool that he used to display That he, and subsequently his people, were different from all other gods and peoples in the land. And that was the giving of the law. Verse 7 and 8 read, the works of Psalm 111. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. And they are established forever and ever. To be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Now apart from the law serving to display and to remind the Israelites of the seriousness of their sin and to the ultimate fulfillment of the sacrificial law in a coming Messiah, the Mosaic law served to remind the Israelites that they were set apart as God's people. The law displayed to the watching world that the Israelites were set apart from the rest of the inhabitants of the land the Israelites were to live a life that was governed not only by the, the seemingly endless succession of animal sacrifices, but also uh, strange dietary laws that dictated what could and couldn't be eaten and, 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 and laws that spoke to what happens if, you're, uh, if your beast gores your neighbor and what seemed like everything in between. But when taken as a picture of how the people of God were to live their lives, a life of adherence to the law of God would would attract the attention of those around them to the end of having their lives direct the observer to the God who made them different. So we, as 21st century believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to consider how the law of Moses relates to us as we look back at the cross. So living on this side of the cross, we praise, we praise our God that the law was fulfilled perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the same way that the Israelites in the land of Canaan were defined by having the law, we, as Christians, are defined by God saving us through faith in the one who kept the law perfectly. Because we could have never kept it by our own good works. So, we close out point two. We see that praising God involves deliberately remembering his works and in doing so, displaying to us and to the watching world that our God is worthy of praise. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is praise is meant to be our response to recognizing God's works. It's 9 and 10. Which read, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now we see in verse 9 where the psalmist is calling on the Israelites to remember and recognize that their status as being God's children is a result of God acting in their lives. It doesn't read that they sought redemption and it doesn't read that they found redemption it displays a heart of praise in remembering that God in his sovereignty sent redemption to his people so throughout the history of the israelites it's clear that they owe their existence to a sovereign to the sovereign hand of god working on their behalf in genesis 12 uh, we see the sojourning and sunless abram looking out across the land of canaan and we read that the Lord appeared to him and said that God will give this whole land to Abram, or to Abram's descendants, I should say. And in due time, God acted for his glory and to fulfill his promise by allowing Sarah, who, for all practical purposes, was past the age of um, biological age of conception, or being able to conceive, rather. She gave birth to a son, Isaac. And again, in due time, as Abraham's descendants grew to a number where they, uh, there became a massive humanity in bondage or slavery in Egypt, we see God again act on their behalf <clears throat> to allow them to begin the exodus from Egypt toward the possession of the promised land. In the minds of the Israelites, as evidenced by Moses' song of, of praise after the parting of the Red Sea that we, we just looked at in Exodus 15, there is a recognition of God's sovereign hand at work. So we read in uh, verse 9 of Psalm 11 that from their humble beginnings, from the, Israel, or from the wilderness wanderings to the conquering of the promised land, God indeed was... Well, he's being praised for being responsible for the redemption of the Israelites. So if we fast forward in redemptive history to the coming of Jesus Christ, the same principle applies. The result of our rebellion to sin, or rebellion to God rather, which is sin, is that we are now targets of God's just wrath. Man was originally created in God's image to reflect God's goodness to his created world and in his created world. And when Adam and Eve sinned, their perfect relationship with God was broken. And that image was contaminated. And the result was now that Adam and Eve were the rightful targets of God's just anger against sin. And everything downstream if you will, which includes the created world but it also certainly includes us as uh, descendants of Adam and Eve, have been subjected to this, to the results of, of the original sin, namely separation from God. But Jesus Christ was sent. So in and of ourselves, we possess no ability to restore our broken relationship with God. Salvation had to be sent to us from outside us the same way that redemption had to be granted to the Israelites from outside themselves. So Psalm 11.9 is attributing the appropriate glory to God for redeeming or, uh, or buying back His people. As those who are eternal benefactors of being in the new covenant through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the payment of our sins, we ascribe that proper recognition to God because he sent his only son to pay the penalty for us because we could never pay the penalty ourselves. Ever. Ever. And the adjectives that the psalmist uses in uh, verse 9 of holy and awesome, that's simply the best he could do. And and those words even fall short. That description of the glory of God or that description that God deserves for securing our salvation and reversing the effects of the curse on creation through Christ falls short of what he deserves for acting on our behalf. So really, all we've read so far in in Psalm 111 points to what our response of praise should be as we study and remember the works of the Lord. And that's what the Bible refers to as uh, the fear of the Lord. In verse 10... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding, and his praise endures forever. And we need to understand that that fearing God for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, vastly different from being afraid of God for the unbeliever. Now, the word fear uh, has... Inherently connected to it, the idea of being afraid. As if to say, I'm afraid of God because if I step out of line, he's going to let me have it. For someone who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, there is great reason to be afraid. There's great reason to be afraid of God because the penalty for sin is which the Bible describes as an eternal separation from God and hell, is how God in his holiness and his justice deals with sin. Chilling words of Luke uh, Luke 12, 4 and 5. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And we also see in the book of Hebrews Jesus being described as our perfect high priest and the perfect mediator between sinful man and a holy God. And the picture here is one of fallen humanity needing to be reunited to God by a mediator who is truly God and truly man. Now God in his perfection has provided the way for us to come back to him. And that is simply by believing that Christ took the due penalty for our sins on the cross but if the God-ordained means of redemption is removed or ignored, then all that is left is to be afraid because that sin debt still needs to be paid. The author of Hebrews describes the one who hears the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and rejects it as, quote, trampling underfoot the Son of God. And the result is that the rejecter is subject to God's just punishment. Hebrews 10.31 reads this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fear of the Lord, or that, that phrase, fearing God, or fear of the Lord, is quite different. When we, as created beings, recognize, study, and remember the works of the Lord and attribute those works as coming from the hand of an all-powerful God who is working all things for his ultimate glory and my ultimate good, it has the effects, the effect in our heart of having a reverence and an awe for God. The author of Hebrews glorifies God by contrasting those who accept God's provision in Christ to those who reject Christ. And to those who accepted the free gift offered in Christ, he writes in Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So also bound up in what it means for the Christian to fear God comes to us in Proverbs 8.13. Now here, God's word portrays wisdom as a woman calling in the streets. And she's calling for the hearer to follow her and to heed her words. And she describes there being a connection between godly wisdom and fearing God. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. It's only when we see our sins the way God sees our sins that we fully appreciate the sacrifice given for us on our behalf. Let me put that another way. The degree to which we treasure Jesus Christ rises or falls according to the degree to which we see our sins as offensive to God. So when studying and remembering the works of God, we must first and foremost consider the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we dwell on the gravity of our sin in light of the degree of God's love that was displayed by sacrificing his son for us, the result ought to be a heart of praise and awe and reverence. In other words, fearing the Lord. So as we consider what Psalm 111 as a whole teaches us uh, regarding how to praise the Lord, uh, let me just conclude with three simple suggestions as to how to apply Psalm 111 in our lives. And I mean, folks, these are simple. Number one would be meet together. Psalm 111, one again. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. In Acts chapter 2, the scene is one where the followers of Jesus Christ Uh, were gathered in the upper room 40 days after uh, Jesus' resurrection. And it was at this time that the Holy Spirit uh, descended on those believers and essentially empowered them uh, to action. And Peter immediately rushed out into the streets and gave what we know as his sermon at Pentecost. And the reaction of the hearers is what we commonly refer to as the birth of the church 3000 people that day heard Peter's gospel message and repented and believed in acts 2 42 and 43 we see the results of that saving work in the lives of those believers 242 of acts luke writes and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And again, down in verse 46 of Acts 2 And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. When we gather on the Lord's day to sit under the teaching of the word, to be with God's people, to sing well played and may I, may I say well vetted theologically accurate lyrics to take communion together and to pray together we are corporately praising God for the work that was done on our behalf at the cross of Jesus Christ. Another Possible application would be remember your conversion story. Now, for some here, I realize that uh, you would need to go back decades to revisit that day, and others maybe a month, or others maybe a week, or a day. But for anyone here today uh, for whom Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, God has broken through the darkness of our sinful rebellion. We read in Daniel chapter 4 of King Nebuchadnezzar's his words after the Lord brought him back from his spell of madness scratching a life in the dirt like a beast brought him back to his senses and the king says in Daniel 4:2, it it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So may I propose that as we study and remember the works of the Lord, that we start there. One's testimony can be a powerful tool in God's hands to remind us of his goodness. And may I also suggest that um, as the corporate church gathers, that we simply ask each other to hear someone's testimony. How'd you come to the Lord? And it really could serve to give us hearts of praise and worship toward him. And third, read your Bible. Now by this, I, I'm more drawing our attention to the motive behind our our reading of the Bible. So reading our Bibles can often, can too often and too easily turn into um, some sort of legalistic act with uh, this sense of duty connected to it. Or maybe we go to the Word uh, just to figure something out. And, and I say that carefully because... The Bible does give us a framework through which we are to view the world around us. And it is not wrong to labor and to search the scriptures in an effort to be able to comprehend and make sense of this uh, world in which we live. But my encouragement today to all of us is to read our Bibles for the purpose of simply meeting with God as revealed on the pages of Scripture. So when we meditate on the truths in his word, especially in the area of what has truly been done for us in Christ, by his Spirit, it can have the effect of bringing our hearts to a place of praise and worship, not merely for what he's done, but for who he is. So I'll I'll just leave us simply by reading uh, the words of David in Psalm 86, verse eight and nine, which reads, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Let's uh, close in prayer. Lord, I ask, I ask for myself and I ask for the fellow saints that you have assembled to live out our Christian lives here at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, to have hearts of praise kindled afresh by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, just please develop further in us hearts that desire to study, to remember, and to respond to your mighty works that you have done to the end of glorifying and magnifying your name in and through us to Flagstaff and beyond. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.